This week, the tropes of fantasy fiction examined and exploded. The Church of St. Springsteen. And what is a nerd, anyway? I'm talking to Christian T. Kelly Madera, the co-creator and director of The Once and Future Nerd, and that's all coming up right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. This week we're playing a conversation I had with Christian T. Kelly Madera, one of the creators, the director, and the executive producer of The Once and Future Nerd. Christian is a delight. He's a thoughtful, pugnacious creator, by which I mean he's not shy about his politics, which I find to be skillfully deployed throughout his work. Some of this interview is a little spoilery, not as spoilery as the extended cut interview Eli made that's available for $3 a month or more subscribers on Patreon, uh, but for maximum context, I would recommend that you listen through to all of the current season, which at the time of this episode is book two, chapter four, I've been working on The Whale Road, which incidentally is one of the reasons I love Christian, let me explain. Whale Road is an old English kenning. It's a compound noun form that comes to us from ancient Norse and old English poetry, you see him in Beowulf or the Icelandic Eddas. Kennings are these poetic euphemisms. Some examples include Gjalfermar, or seastead, meaning ship, Grenir Gunmas, or raven feeder, meaning warrior, or Hronrad, the whale road, the sea. So if you take the scholarly bent required to know about Kennings and combine it with that very, very goofy pun, you have kind of the whole show in a nutshell, to be honest, which is why I love it. Anyway, in this interview, we unravel the assumptions about race and gender that underlie genre fiction tropes, we discuss the evolution of the show as it moved to a writer's room structure, we discuss the dialects and accents of various characters, including and especially the Jamaican patois of Red Eye Wren, and of course, we talk about the boss, Bruce Springsteen. Okay, here we go. My conversation with Christian T. Kelly Madera. Christian, hello! Welcome! Thank you for coming on Radio Drama Revival. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on. I mean, this is a long time coming. You've been at this game for a while. You know? <laughs> that is true. <laughs> I, I feel like, what, what's the timeline? The initial kernel of this idea came about in, like, 2012, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, we started writing in 2012, because I think... Think if you check, I think probably Skyrim came out in November of 2011, and uh, the idea kind of, the, or the, at least the first seed of the idea came to be over a, a way too long uh, Christmas week uh, Skyrim binge. So yeah, we started writing it, Zach and I started writing it in 2012. We put out our first episode in, I believe, September of 2013. And we are still going. We're putting out uh, new episodes at the end of March. Okay, let's go back real quick to the Skyrim thing. Uh-huh. So if I'm piecing this together right, you and Zach met at marching band. That's correct. Right, okay. And then the kernel of this show came out of this Christmas break Skyrim binge that your player character has the opportunity to summon a really destructive god. Right. And there's a dialogue option to say, hey, that's a horrendous idea. Did you take that option? And what happens if you do? I think I think I did because it was just so good and I couldn't imagine any reasonable person doing otherwise. 
Because you were attracted to this idea of someone being normal and petty inside a high fantasy construct, right? Right, because it just seemed it seemed so human, and it stuck out in a, a genre where characters often behave in almost superhuman or like extremely heroic ways for someone to just be a normal, no, I'm not doing that person. So the Once and Future Nerd feels to me like a very political show. Like it's engaged with the ideas around deconstructing and reconstructing the tropes and themes of fantasy fiction, but not just exclusively to hang a lampshade on it and say, oh, look, the orc general has a critique of feudalism, so wacky, but to challenge the very idea, for example, that orcs are necessarily bad to begin with. And if you yank on that thread everything else about the fantasy genre starts to unravel. What's so attractive to you about identifying and challenging those tropes? Well, I think I was into, really into fantasy as like a, you know, when I was in middle school, because that was when the Harry Potter books really got good. And that was when the Lord of the Rings movies came out. And so I was super into all of that stuff, but not, you know, I wasn't engaging with it any deeper than, you know, you would expect an eighth grader to. And then I kind of I kind of fell off for whatever reason. I wasn't keeping up with with fantasy into um young adulthood. And then like I said, Skyrim kind of reignited that that interest for me. So then when I went back in as an adult with kind of fresh-ish eyes, I'll say, because you know, I still have all the the lens of society and everything. Um, but I went back in as an adult and started to look at what was going on in fantasy and also read what other, what like other social critics were saying about fantasy. And it kind of occurred to me that like, okay, if we're going to pull on some of the threads in fantasy, we should pull on as many as we can. Like we shouldn't take anything in the genre for granted and 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 play it straight if we can avoid it. And as I started to think along the lines of like, well, what if everybody was just like petty? Like what if they had the same, you know, foibles and 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 insecurities and everything as, you know, real people in the real world? The, I kind of worked backwards to the idea that like, hey, it's weird that elves are presented as like racially superior. And that if you had an elf who, who was, you know, like a Tolkien elf in the way the world treats them, that but was petty and, and human in the way that people in our world are like that elf would be a racist 100 percent. And so that was one of the early kernels of the idea. And then as I started to think about that and pull on it, I realized like, oh, a lot of really smart people have tugged at the racialism that's gotten baked into fantasy and have there's like there's a lot there that people are already working on and and how could that be worked into a story um and i think it all started to to click and gel for me when i was i was actually writing the scene where Yellowween meets Billy Jen and Nelson for the first time right around the time that um, I saw Cabin in the Woods. And I thought that that was something that did a, a great job of not only 
you know, like you said, hanging a lampshade on the tropes, like, haha, why does this always happen? But also taking a step further into, you know, some level of social commentary of what what need is it fulfilling in our society that we keep making these movies where we punish young, attractive people for being young and attractive. So I thought they did a, a really good job of like the genre spoof that is also social commentary. And that was from then on, that was kind of like my tonal touchstone of how I wanted to to handle, as you say, the 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 politics of the show, which I think is maybe not, you know, explicitly partisan in a U.S. political context, but is extremely concerned with how power is structured uh, in in our world. I've been thinking a lot about the racialism part since like uh, since a couple of years ago, I talked to Eric and Amanda of Join the Party and Multitude about the almost phrenology of D&D, how there's these racial bonuses and demerits to playing mm-hmm. certain races. And I, I don't know, like it, in, in horror, how horror can sometimes be this punitive genre, like you were saying, where a character can get murdered for being sexual. What, what, what are some of the ideas that are reified in high fantasy? even by the stalwarts of the genre that we grew up with. I think Tolkien is so instrumental in what we think of as um, modern fantasy. You know, there's an argument to be made that like all quote unquote fantasy is footnotes on Tolkien in the way that, you know, all philosophy is footnotes on Plato. And, you know, I think (laughs) Tolkien was probably the, the least racist person he knew and thought of himself, he was he was appalled by what he saw as the obvious racism in the world around him. But as a white British man born in South Africa in the 1890s, there's going to be some stuff that's just baked into his worldview that maybe we shouldn't approach uh, uncritically um, for, you know, a hundred years of writing a genre. And a part of it, and it's not just even the 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 race stuff. I, I mean, there's like Tolkien drew very heavily from Anglo-Saxon poetry. He was a professor of of Anglo-Saxon, and uh, the the Anglo-Saxons were a pretty warlike people. A lot of their poetry, you know, really reifies you know fighting and solving problems through violence, and and makes that. Um, glorious. So I think that's always been a problem with fantasy. And I think not to, I don't want to claim to be reinventing uh, the wheel there. I mean, I think the whole quote unquote grim dark movement in fantasy when it's at its best and when it's not just kind of, you know, edgy for edgy's sake, you know, someone like uh, uh, George R. R. Martin, what, what I think is doing very intentionally is trying to show just how awful it would be to live in a world where violence solves most of the political disputes. So, so that's certainly part of it, but there is undeniably, if not outright racism, there is undeniably racialism baked into. And can we, can we gloss that real quick? So um, racism can, well, it can mean a lot of things, but it, I'm, I'm using it to mean either discrimination or specific harms done on the basis of race or uh, animus on the, you know, dis- dislike or distrust or whatever on the on the basis of race, whereas racialism is 
just the belief that race is a meaningful category and a reliable predictor of character in any way. And there's arguments over whether, you know, whether it's even possible for something to be racialist without being racist on some level. But I think you need to show your work a lot more to show something is racist, but it's very easy to to show that Tolkien is is racialist just from the fact that like, you know, elves are the way they are because they're elves. Orcs are the way they are because they're orcs. You know, Bilbo leaves the Shire with the dwarves, um, not because the Shire is boring, but because of his adventurous took blood. <laughs> sure. You know, there's all this and there's all this stuff about blood and, you know, and, and it's like genetic determinism. Yes. Something like that. Yeah. I love how much every character grows in the Once and Future Nerd, especially the Pennsylvanians. And I feel like all of them are coming to terms with aspects of American society that Jordan reveals to them. Like all three of them wrestle with different aspects of the racist, sexist, morass, which called curiarchy, right? But each of them has a different track. Nelson has to wrestle with the racism heretofore unseen in the media he loves. Billy has to expunge his dad's toxic masculinity. And Jen has to confront the, the limitations she's put on herself through self-hatred. Did the original plan for these characters change? What did you initially envision as the purpose of bringing them to Jordan? That's a really good question. Um, I honestly can't say that I 100% remember what the original, original idea was because uh, it was, again, <laughs> six years ago or whatever it was. Oh, my God. Um, I know that Nerd Jock and Cheerleader were like an early part of the idea uh, because I was also rediscovering breakfast club at about the time that I was uh, starting to write this. And I also, I know that very early on there was this idea that there would be more to these characters than the, you know, the roles they play in their, in their subculture. And the idea of like Jen being a lot more book smart than she lets on, you know, Billy having room to grow, Nelson having to, like, you know, all, all the stuff you said. And one of the struggles early on that we, a needle where that was tricky to thread is how do you give these characters that room to grow and, and kind of use them as a way to reveal the audience's biases to them without on the one hand you don't want to tip your hand too much about where the characters are going and on the other hand you don't want to make the characters so cliched so generic in the beginning that it turns people off because they think it's a story they've heard a million times before. Um, and to be quite honest, I'm still not a hundred percent sure um, we thread that needle exactly right. I know that a few people have started the show, thought it was going to be generic and like characters they'd seen a million times before, and then had other people tell them like, no, 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 stick with it. A few episodes, it really does start to to flip your your expectations. And I, I, I yeah, so I, I never, and I've tried, um, you know, as an exercise, rewriting the pilot a few times to see how to get that balance exactly right. And I've, I, it's always a struggle, I think. That, 
That sounds really hard. It's very hard. I don't, you know, I, one of, another one of my biggest influences is Joseph Heller's Catch-22, which is, I think, my favorite novel of all time. And something that he does really well is he almost uses the audience's sense of humor um, at, almost as a weapon against them. <laughs> um, because without, uh, without, you know, spoiling a 60-year-old book, there's a scene early in the book that is extremely funny uh, in just its absurdity and the way the characters play it. And you read it and you laugh and you love it. And then as the book goes on and slowly begins to reveal to you um, the trauma that all of the characters have been through, you understand why that scene was happening and it becomes so tragic and it just, it yanks the rug out from under you. And in, in making you feel ashamed for laughing it uses that that shame impulse to like really make you question what you thought before. Um, so that's something I've always aspired to, and I'm I'm never sure that um, that I, I I got it. But that's kind of what we were going for with the with the conclusion of our first book. And so I never knew how to exactly how to set that up quite right in the beginning. How how did the show change once some of the cast members started writing episodes? When it stopped being just you and Zach pitching and writing stuff, I think in a way it got a little, it got more fun and free um, because when you're just pitching stuff around in a room, you you see what's funny and you get that immediate reaction and you can avoid the the trap of um what do I want to call it? I think my my wife who does uh dramatic improv has used this term before of like the the sincerity trap where if you're work you're starting out in a kind of a comic space and then you do something sincere and emotional and you realize how effective it becomes there is a temptation to just be sincere and emotional all the time and lose track of the fact that like part of the reason that affected the audience so much is that they were reasonably expecting comedy if you know what i mean yeah there's there's this joke kind of in in chicago improv where at 10 p.m on a given friday night in the middle of any long form improv show in the city you'll always find this one actor giving an impassioned speech about their dad (laughs) yeah exactly exactly um and so, you know, the end of our first book was pretty dark, and I think it needed to go there to tell the story we wanted to tell. Yeah, it kicked me right in the ass, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad it had the intended effect. Um, but then it's like, I don't, you know, I don't want the show to become just inescapably dark because people are people and people adapt and, you know, people make the best of the situations they're in. And I think having the room... I think something that I'm very proud of the way we've done so far in book two is to really have, you know, those moments of darkness and sincerity balanced with just really goofy, fun stuff. Um, this, this is maybe a, a minor spoiler, but I'll, um, I'll say that we, we essentially at one point, at one really key turning point in the story, we use a pooping pigeon in the way that Tolkien used eagles. Um, which I felt very on brand for us. And also, maybe this will be obvious to to some people, but I think we've been able to dig more into the sex and 
and race stuff that has always been in our story. Um, now that we've had a room because we, you know, Zach and I are two white guys and we had, you know, now we have women in the room and we have women of color in the room, you know, not just performing, but uh, writing some of the, the scenes. And so it's, you know, there's not this, there's less this worry of like, oh God, I have to deal with this. I'm going to do it wrong and everybody's going to hate me. <laughs> right. Like now you're putting the actual stakeholders in these conversations. Now they have to, they get a voice. Exactly. So you've got a film and philosophy degree. Zach's a bioengineer. And I, I feel like the character that manifests both philosophy and science most acutely is Jen. Yes. I, my, my question for you, does the title of the series refer to Jen and not Nelson, even though he bears most of the signifiers of male nerd culture? Right. I think that maybe it's up to the audience. Oh, like, postmodernism. I, I don't mean to be too... <laughs> this is more of your author is dead Pomo shit. <laughs> I, I won't be able to pin you down on anything. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, no, no. I No, I think... The author's intent is ambiguity on that one, because I think at the core of this whole exercise, I mean, I think we're seeing one of the many fronts of our uh, ever exacerbating culture war that we're seeing is a fight over um, what is nerd culture and who who does it belong to? Yeah, I mean, my follow up question was, man, what even is a nerd? Right. So I think that's part of the show um is that like okay who is who is the nerd and what does that even mean so the character of renault uh <laughs> which which one of your listeners called the neckbeard mancer uh -huh. or if you prefer a nice cremancer he's this brutal assessment of the classic nerd who expects to be rewarded with sex in exchange for kindness and I'll be honest, that was me at the start of college. Like if I didn't learn about feminism early enough, I could have gone down a really dark path. Can you tell me more about that character? And if you're comfortable, if there's some of your past self located in that character, uh, because you you play Renault, right? I do. I do play Renault, and I think I'm in exactly the same boat as you. Where like early college, I think I I felt a lot of those same you know all that same unlearned garbage that led to really unhealthy resentments. And I'm lucky that uh, you know I had people patient enough with me that I didn't go down that path. Um, people are so patient with us. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I feel like there's this overriding narrative where people are always ready to cancel white men, but people have been so goddamn patient with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. It's like, we've talked about this before, but like in a, in a perfect world, mm -hmm. you know, young white men would just try to learn on their own and, and take that first step and seek out the resources that are definitely there if they care to look. But if we're being honest with ourselves, I think every dude who cares about feminism has at least one woman in his past who was far more patient with him than he deserved. You know, every every white 100%. person who cares about anti-racism has at least one person of color in their past who is far more patient with them than, than they deserve. Yeah. But Yes, I think I did focus all of that shame and fear of, of an alternate path uh, into my uh, performance of Renault, whom I detest uh, as a character, but, but do adore playing. Because it, it 
it does play to my strengths as an actor, um, which are uh, none. Um, he's not a subtle character in any way, so I can kind of just, um, you know, my my theater training kind of stopped in twelfth grade. Um, so a character where I can just kind of devour scenery um, and not be subtle at all is right right up my alley. <laughs> so Christian, tell me about Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> In an interview, you said that Tolkien was Catholic the way you were a Springsteen fan. <laughs> Careful listeners will notice how you refer to Bryce Riverfell's lieutenants as Clarence, the big man, or the professor, right? Uh-huh. What interview did I say that in? That's so, I, don't, I don't remember. That's so on brand for I'll, I'll, I'll look it up and I'll, I'll tell you after the interview. <laughs> These were references, right, to, to real yeah. members, both living and departed, of Springsteen's E Street Band. And Bryce is from Freehold, which in our realm is the seat of Monmouth County, New Jersey, uh-huh. which is where Bruce is from. So what does Bruce mean? And this is such a, like, we could do an entire other interview just about this, I think. So I'm going to very trepidatiously crack open this topic and ask, what does Bruce Springsteen mean to you? <laughs> um, To me, like, here's kind of a a deep dark secret of the show um, that will, I think become more obvious as our current book unfolds itself. Uh, This is in many ways to me, a story about America. And I think that Bruce Springsteen means to me um, a very specific way of being an American that I am largely sympathetic to, if not, a hundred percent on board with all the time. Um, I think it's a, a good and defensible way to be an American. Um, so there's, um, four forts in Jordan that are the, uh, civic guard and are basically tasked with, um, defending the human realms from outside threats, which in this case, Right, and I was trying to puzzle out which musicians they correspond to. Yes. They as, you, all, as you name them, I'm going to try and guess. Okay. They all, yeah, they all correspond to um, someone who I was listening to a lot when I started writing the story. And I, without my reference documents, I'm not going to be able to remember who is in which fort. So other than that, uh, Bryce Riverfell is in Freehold. Um, but so forgive me that. Seahold was, I want to say, Ivan, son of Morrison, right? So Van Morrison. Uh, yes, Ivan, son of Morris. Yep. Yep. I was listening to a lot of Astral Weeks <laughs> when I uh, first started writing this to get me in kind of like a, a magic mood. And then there's Dylan Kerr of Blackhold. Yes. Right. And who was that? Is that Bob Dylan? So the trick there. Um, okay. D- Dylan Kerr is actually John F. Kennedy, weirdly, not a musician. (laughs) But um, because the speech that he gives about Traft, the one time we hear him talk, is uh, very similar to something I read from Kennedy from, I think, his, his presidential primary debate and what he was saying about the Cuban revolution and about how well, this is the the sum of our sins in Latin America, and we'll have to answer for it at some point, which was astonishing to me to hear an American presidential candidate who went on to win say that. Sure. Um, so 
Dylan Kerr is John Kennedy, but he is eventually they they wanted Traft when he was being trained by the elves to take his place. And Traft, I'll give you for free because there's no clues in the name. But Traft is essentially Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine. Oh, okay. Uh, and so I think I was writing that uh, Bryce Riverfell Traft conversation at about the time that Tom Morello was on tour with the E Street Band and just trying to imagine how those two men would see America differently uh, and how Bruce Springsteen, I think, though deeply critical of a lot of the ways we run things, would be much more protective of what he believed was there to protect and that um, some parts of the system can still work for people and Tom Morello being a lot more um, just burn the whole motherfucker down. And then the last garrison is, I believe it was uh, (laughs) Robert Greenhorn and his page James. Is that Dylan? Who is that? Because he's just, that's from Greenhold, right? It's not. uh, It's uh, Robert Plant and Jimmy Page. Oh, sure. Sure. (laughs) Who, of course, have uh, written a million songs about hobbits. Oh, God damn it. Oh, you <laughs> fucking nerd. <laughs> okay. So, right. Um, let, let's get back to Springsteen and the way he sees America. I feel like I, I interrupted you with some of those. Well, just, I think I, I covered some of it in what I was saying about, you know, compare him with like a Tom Morello, that I think there is a... There is a a core of faith for Bruce Springsteen in, you know, what America could be that has kind of developed over the years. You know, um, Born in the USA famously misinterpreted uh, very often. But if you listen to the song, it's this, this very angry song about how we mistreat veterans. And so I think the Born in the USA album is kind of like, what do you do with the American dream when it's inaccessible to so many people? Um, and I think that's always been kind of a, a thread um, through his his writing, at least as soon as he started to turn outwards, um, you know, around like the the Nebraska era. And I think even in in recent years, he's maybe even gone a step further than that. If you listen to a song like um, Wrecking Ball, uh, not to be confused with the Miley Cyrus one, where it seems Emus almost as though he's saying, okay, maybe even the dream is dead. Now what? What do we still protect? Um, But I think there is a core in him of like, there is goodness in the in the quote unquote common American and what do we do with that when so many of our leaders don't seem to care about that or even want to try and pull us in the in the other direction. Sure. And Traft is more like, yeah, fuck it. There's there's nothing to save here. Yeah. What's the what's the resonance of darkness on the edge of town for you? Like, either the song or the whole record, right? Obviously, it was important enough to name an entire chapter of the series after. Yeah. I mean, I think the um, 
the resonance of that that song is this, you know, it's very growing up in a in a small town and having this sense that you can't even articulate fully that there's another way to lead your life that is just out of reach that is uh inaccessible to you um and i think like that really resonates with my understanding of uh of billy and jen who kind of know there's something more and don't quite know how to get it and uh moreover there's a line in the song um that says uh everybody's got a secret son uh something they just can't face which i think in some ways is my entire uh outlook as a writer of like the my favorite way to craft a story is to make someone have to deal with something they're not ready to deal with through external circumstances so it, it it resonates with me as a, a writer a lot. Uh, and that, that album also has uh, the song uh, Adam Raised Cain, um, which is one of the most explicit and angry songs that um, Bruce ever wrote about his relationship with his father, um, which was kind of in the background of everything else he ever wrote. But that song is just all about that and just full of rage. And part of, part of that chapter darkness on the edge of town was also uh billy dealing with his his issues with with his dad and and trying to acknowledge that or starting to acknowledge that he learned a lot of stuff from his dad that he doesn't want to define him um as a person which feels uh very bruce springsteen to me i have a sort of out of left field question for you yeah so as a leftist like does it does it ever feel weird to find yourself writing a story about the restoration of a monarchy? <laughs> uh, I've here's what I'll say. I've thought about that a lot. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, a couple of follow ups, and you can deflect as you wish. Sure. Uh, Traft seems to embody a lot of the political opinions I've heard you espouse, something similar to what the late Congressman John Dingell wrote in the op-ed published the day he died, which was that political power does not belong to an elected official per se, but is held by an official on behalf of their constituents, which was neatly presaged by Traft's address to Smith the Smith, right? That who do you serve conversation. Right. Um, Traft has these ideals that nod towards social democracy, but he makes a pact with chaos warlocks to try to achieve it. Whereas Regan is pragmatic, but initially amoral. Right. And both of these characters are oppressed along different axes and have different responses to each. This isn't really a, a question, but I know you've given their political philosophy some thought, and I wanted to see what you had to say on, on that score. Yeah, I mean, I think I would say Traft to me is uh, not terribly unlike say a Che Guevara or or something where okay it's almost like well i mean very simply it's someone who is responding to legitimate oppression but being too careless too excessive in the harms that they will do to correct it and something that i wanted to wrestle with that but not in the way that I've seen some recent fiction do it 
Um, because I think something that really frustrates me, like I, I basically put down Bioshock Infinite when it did this thing of this idea of like Bioshock Infinite, basically, you know, you meet the leftists who are fighting this, you know, floating castle of, of racism that the game has built. And then you start to realize that, you know, some of what they're doing um, is, is dangerous and abusive. And the game at that point kind of throws up its hands and says, well, uh, it's all bad. So I guess let's preserve the status quo where, uh, you know, enough people have $60 to uh, spend on uh, a video game, but maybe don't have healthcare. Um, it's weird that the game developers um, would take that position. Um, and it's, that's very frustrating to me, but I think here's what I'll say. I do think that the modern young left should be willing, more willing to grapple with how and when, um, leftist revolutions have gone off the rails. And I know that the reason people are reticent to do that is because they're, defensive against decades of bad faith attacks from the right that like, you know, step one, 70% marginal tax rate, step two, Maoist China um, is not, you know, really a fair line of attack. So I understand why people are reticent to do that. But then I've seen Twitter conversations where literally, you know, someone took the position Actually, if anything, Mao was too permissive to the masses. And it's like, okay, no, we can't just have a race to the bottom of who can be the most revisionist in defense of the left. Like, if we want to actually build a movement that makes a more just society, we need to be clear-eyed about, you know, left-wing injustice that has existed. And I don't think that, like, taxing the rich more or even privatizing certain industries counts as injustice. But I think maybe, you know, to cut circle back to Shay and Fidel, like, yeah, probably um, roving gangs of, of summary execution, uh, that probably would constitute, uh, you know, a, a leftist excess that we should avoid repeating. So Traft is kind of my attempt to good faith wrestle with that where on the one hand it's like i see the fact that he's executed children as an unqualified you know moral wrong a, a gratuitous harm but in some ways he's one of the only people we've heard who's taking seriously enough the the gravity of the harm that has been done to his people which of course we you know we see we get a glimpse of how just how bad it is at the end of of book 1 Right. One one of the things that I really loved about the character of Red Eye Wren, the half-orc pirate from Book 2, Chapter 4, is that she speaks something analogous to Jamaican Patois. She's played by Shannon Harris, who also has writing credits for those episodes. And I noticed when I looked through the scripts that Wren's lines aren't written in Patois, but in standard English. And that suggested to me that the decision to make Wren a Patois speaker was Shannon's. Is that true, first of all? Um, it's actually, I, we decided together that that would be the dialect, um, for Ren, but we also decided that I just think it's a bad look to write in dialect, especially when it's like, 
you know, a black coded dialect when we haven't written in dialect for any other, you know, we've got characters who speak in a Scottish dialect or a, uh, an Irish dialect. And other than occasionally putting, you know, a me where there would be a my, we don't write in those dialects. Um, so the decision was like, okay, we're going to write her in standard English the way we write uh, every character, but we know that this will be the, the, the performance choice. Sure. Can you tell me how that came about? Like the decision for that character to be Jamaican, because it's an accent you almost never hear in genre fiction in the U.S. The closest thing I can think of are the trolls in the Warcraft universe uh-huh. who kind of have this white dude's impression of what Jamaican sounds like. Yeah, yeah, that's a whole can of worms to delve into. Yeah, what decisions were made to make that character to give that character that dialect? Right. Well, I think um, a choice we made fairly early on when we were just kind of like brainstorming the show of like, all right, what what do we think is annoying or even just boring about fantasy that we want to change? And one of the things was like, who decided that everybody just has, you know, an English accent, like especially because of the modern English accent sounds nothing like what they would have spoken in, quote unquote, fantasy times so there was this idea of like okay well the elves are gonna be racist let's give them like aristocratic southern accents and then a justification for it can be that a you know antebellum southern accent is actually probably closer to um what english sounded like in the 15 or 1600s than a modern english dialect for all sorts of uh you know interesting linguistic reasons and, oh, uh, well, we've got uh, a port city with a vaguely Celtic past with a, like a, a, you know, a large working class uh, population and also this kind of like very prestigious uh, university there. So, well, they, they just have Boston accents. That seemed obvious. And then as we started to expand the world, we started to play more and more with like, how can we use dialect as as a shortcut to you know code characters certain ways we knew that we wanted to have more characters of color in the second book we knew we wanted to well we knew we wanted to have more uh, actors of, of color too and so once we started talking about the idea of there being like a you know a seafaring episode with pirates it's it started to be the idea was basically any culture who has ever meaningfully spent time on boats uh, is, is was fair game um, for, for dialects that could be there, which is why, you know, Ren's second in command has a Minnesota, Minnesota accent <laughs> uh, because of, you know, he's a Viking, but he's polite like uh-huh. the, you know, Scandinavian loggers who came over to the this continent. But yeah, it was like, well, we've set up this world where there's kind of piracy and we've hinted at there being a quasi-tropical island chain further off to the east and it's like we seem like we're moving towards you know a kind of caribbean pastiche in this part of the world so why not introduce that with a jamaican pirate that all seems to check out historically sure um, also, the idea that all pirate accents must sound the same is directly the fault of this one actor. I don't know. Do you know this one? I didn't. 
there was this actor who was from, I want to say, Dorset, who played Long John Silver in the Disney Treasure Island from 1954. And he kind of has that Hagrid accent, right? Okay. This like rhotic accent. Arr. Yeah, arr, from the southwest of England where they say the rust sound at the end of words. And that's like entirely where the pirate accent comes from, from generations of actors thereafter. That's that's what pirate was. Right. When in reality, the whole thing about being, you know, you were, it was a bunch of ragtag, you know, either I want more money than any national Navy pays or I've been kicked out of everything else. So it was going to be, you know, you'd probably have native English speakers and native French speakers and native Spanish speakers and native Dutch speakers and escaped slaves and I'm sorry, you know, enslaved people. Um, right. And, and Yoruba speakers. Right. Exactly. And so it would probably have been just a linguistic chaos on a pirate ship. Um, so I'm going to defend my very bold choices there. Yes. And quickly, tell me what's happening. It's almost 12 o'clock. I have a neighbor coming by to drop off their TV stand. So give me the hot deets. Okay. And then we should, sadly, part ways. Sure. Um, so Once a Future Nerd has new episodes coming out starting uh, March 24th. Um, it'll be our, our next chapter drops then and uh, four episodes that will release biweekly. And we're also um, we're kind of in a in a push to increase our Patreon intake. And so we've added a new stretch goal where if we get to $500 per episode, we will commission unique artwork uh, for each of our chapters as they come out. And $3 plus patrons uh, will get a high-res desktop wallpaper of that image. Uh, $5 plus patrons will get a sticker in the mail. Um, and if you pledge $45 an episode, you will get a, a poster in addition to an associate producer credit on the show and all the lower tier rewards. Um, we've also actually added a, a $60 per episode tier, um, which will twice a year get you detailed feedback from uh, Zach or I on um, something you're writing, if you think that would be helpful to you. And... What else? What else? Oh, and if you're not familiar with The Once and Future Nerd and you are uh, intrigued based on um, what you heard here, you can go to onceandfuturenerd.com slash welcome and we've got there uh, kind of a whole guide to give you the rundown and, and, and get you started. Christian, this was such a fun time. Thank you for coming on the show with me It today. has. Thank you, David. I'm so glad we did this. Me too. You are welcome back anytime, of course. Thank you. Maybe we can have you on to talk about like podcast music. That was something we didn't even begin to touch on. And and I love the music production in the Once in Future Nerd. It started off good and it got even better. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we're uh <laughs> we're we're getting even more ambitious uh with the music and uh we've tried something in our new chapter that I'm not even 100% sure it works yet, but it is uh just <laughs> auditory chaos that might be exactly the right choice. We'll see if I, uh, if I have the nerve to publish it. I cannot wait. Thank you once again to Christian for coming on the show, and if you want to support the work that he and his team are doing, head over to patreon.com slash onceandfuturenerd, or check out their website at onceandfuturenerd.com to read transcripts, investigate cast and crew bios, or purchase merchandise, including skeins of yarn inspired by the show. 
We also have a Patreon over at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. Come on by and give us your sweet bucks, and we all say thank you. Cheers to you, Liam, Thomas, and Katie. Thank you for joining us, dear hearts, sweet traveling babs, my fellow nerds. Here's my challenge to you for this week. Remember Kennings from the intro to this episode? Whale Road, Sea Steed, right? Tell me a Kenning for audio fiction. Tweet your ideas to at Radiodrama, and if you're very unlucky, I might just start using it on the show. Oh, and one more thing about dialects. Remember the sage words of the Yiddish scholar Max Weinreich, who said, A Sprach is a dialect mit an army und flot, which in English means a language is just a dialect with an army and a navy. The validity that we confer on a language is a function of its perceived social value, which can often be distorted by forces both intentional and accidental. Carry that thinking into your interaction with quote-unquote non-standard Englishes, if you speak or hear some. Your English is good. That's all. And now, your moment of will. Hey friends! If you tuned in last week, you know that I asked a fantastical trivia question. The question was, what is said to be a fairy's favorite sound? Well, you might think butterfly wings or bells or something fantastical, but no, it's actually the crow of a rooster. Uh, In fairy's defense, though, roosters are scientifically proven to be pretty neat. So... Join us again for our next episode showcase of a modern audio fiction, and you'll hear another moment of will and another trivia question. And hey, your English is good, no matter what kind of English it is. I'm proud of you. And now, the credits. Our theme music is Danger Diggy Doo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer is Will Williams. Our interviews producer is Eli McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our submissions editor is Elena Fernandez-Collins. Our social media manager is James Oliva. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhouch. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. Is it digi do? It's diggy do. Diggy diggy do, diggy do do. Why have I been saying digi for like a million years? This is this is a shameful moment for me. <laughs>